Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joyful bits. And we thank you for the bits, Lord, that are harder to read. Help us, Lord, to understand your word in its fullness and to accept it. For, Lord, in your word, there is life. May any of my words, Lord, this morning that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain. And may it bear much fruit in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I know we have a smaller crew this morning. This may be a foretaste of what our winter will look like. Let us continue to lift up our, prayer, our church, our community, our nation, our world in the midst of this pandemic. There's been some good news with uh, announcements of a vaccine, potential vaccine. Uh, that's a blessing, especially for those of us in the first world. It's not a blessing which is likely to reach the third world within the next couple of years. Let's also keep that in our minds. There's so much to pray about. Let us be diligent to keep these things before the Lord. Well, last week, uh, I talked about, based upon the lessons that we read, about our core Christian theology of the end times. It's not something I had given a sermon to prior to uh, at Living Faith in the last three years, and so it was appropriate that we, we talked about that. And we're going to follow up on that sermon today. I said last week that when we think about Christ's second coming and how at that time he's going to make all things right again, as the colic that we read today said, he's going to restore all things, that promise, that truth, it gives us hope. Eschatology, the theology of the end times, matters because of hope. And hope is no small thing. It's not a small thing. Tell that to the hopeless. Hope is one of the three highest virtues that the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Faith, hope, and love. Now, hope is a word that is often used by political candidates in speeches and by musicians in songs and by actors in films. This past week, my wife and I, we went back and we watched the first Star Wars to ever come out, A New Hope, right? While hope is a very common word for us to come across in our everyday discourse, Christian hope is different. It's not just built upon wishful, positive feelings about what may come. That's good. I long for that kind of hope. I'm sure our world needs that kind of hope, but Christian hope is different. It is built upon the sure belief in God's unfailing promises. It's not based on a whim. It's based on the promises of Almighty God. And as a result, if we are people who are believing God's promises, then believers will be marked by lives of deep and abiding hope. Are there other ways in which our lives as Christians are supposed to be different because of what we believe about the end? because of what we hope for in the end. In other words, are there other characteristics about believers who hope for Jesus' return? 
What I want to do this morning is something that I don't often do. A lot of Anglican preachers will preach this way every Sunday, and that may be good to you. It may not be good. I don't know. But what I'm going to do is take a journey uh, through all four of our lessons this morning. We're going to just touch briefly on all of them, and we're going to see how the counsel of Scripture in its fullness, Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament, and Gospel, speaks to this question. Before I do that, I want to introduce the theme for this sermon this morning by talking to you about what has been described as America's best idea, the national parks. There's a a Ken Burns documentary by that name. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about living here in Arizona, uh, more so than living in the East, is that relatively speaking, we are so much closer to so many of the best national parks. Now, the East Coast does have some, I've been to Acadia in Maine, I've been to Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, I've been to Everglades in Florida, but if you look at a map of all the national parks, you'll see that, you know, the scales really tilt in favor of the West Coast. Since living here, my family and I have got young children, so we haven't gotten out as much as I really, really want to, but we have made a few stops. We've made it to the Grand Canyon, to Saguaro, we've driven through Joshua Tree, and uh, this August we got to go to Sequoia and Kings Canyon. And at this point, the, the, the top three that I, st- I want to see the most are Glacier, Yellowstone, and Yosemite. Now, Yellowstone has something unique there, and I've heard this, obviously I haven't been, but I've heard that they have this hole in the ground. And there's this hole in the ground that has water in it. And evidently, 20 times a day, Water erupts out of this hole and sprays out with steam high up into the air. And it happens so regularly that the park rangers can predict when it's going to erupt within 10 minutes. And they can do that with 90% accuracy. So this water-filled hole in the ground is such a remarkably consistent and dependable thing that it has long gone by this name. We know it as Old Faithful. Without fail, this geyser does what we expect it to do. If it didn't, people wouldn't be traveling to Yellowstone as much. But you go to Yellowstone, you know you're going to get to see this thing go. It doesn't stop. It doesn't forget what it needs to do. It doesn't go away. It's faithful to do exactly what it's been made to do. From this geyser, we get a a very interesting picture of perhaps what faithfulness looks like to God, and therefore, what faithfulness God expects of his people. The scripture lesson I want to begin with this morning is the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 25, in which Jesus tells another parable of the kingdom. This one's called the parable of the talents. Jesus tells this story of a master who goes away on a journey. And when we hear that, we should uh, kind of think about the fact that Jesus went away at the ascension, which we talked about last week. Well, in going away, this master gives to each of his servants who remain behind a certain sum of money in order that they might take care of it in his absence. The first servant gets five talents, sum of money. The second servant gets two talents, and the third servant gets one talent. Now, the the, the amount that each servant gets isn't as consequential as we might think. The scripture passage says, to each was given uh, to his ability. This first servant, what does he do? He goes and he invests it, and he ends up with 10 talents total. 
The second servant, he invests the two talents that he got, and he ends up with four talents. The third servant does not do this. He does something really interesting. He goes, he digs a hole, and he buries it in the ground. Why did he do that? Why, why was that his thought? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to ask the question, why did the other two first think that they should invest their talents? And the answer to that question is, those two servants wanted to please their master. They wanted to please him. They knew that in coming back, the master would be pleased to see more there than which he left. They wanted to obey him. They wanted to be faithful. So that's what they did. This third servant was different. I don't know if it's so much that he didn't want to please his master, but that wasn't the thing he was concerned with most. He was not so much concerned with the master's reputation and his resources as he was with this one thing, self-preservation. Self-preservation. Jesus says he was afraid. He believed that burying the talent would give him a better chance at being unharmed when the master came back. And this was actually the opposite of what came to pass, wasn't it? At the end of the parable, Jesus says that this servant was judged harshly. And this is what he says. And he cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, obviously, when Jesus is telling these parables, he's talking about the kingdom, and he's, he's trying to tell us what it's going to be like in the end. And so in this statement, what Jesus is doing is invoking everyone's least favorite doctrine. It's the doctrine of hell. But more than just trying to tell us what hell is literally like, in fact, that's not Jesus' main emphasis. What Jesus is doing is describing two things by mentioning this. He's saying, first of all, this is what it will feel like to be eternally separated from God. Second, eternal separation from God is a real thing that happens to those who love evil. And we're going to talk more about this next week when we get to the last part of chapter 25 in, in the book of Matthew. Um, so I'm not going to go there any further this week, but I do want to just go back to the other two servants. How did the master treat them? Well, this is what he told the both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So if the third servant gets a picture of what hell will be like, well, these two servants get a picture of what the kingdom of God will be like. Jesus is saying, this is what it will feel like and be like to be welcomed into Christ's kingdom. Now, I want to just hone in on one word which Jesus used to describe these two servants. Can you guess it? Faithful. Faithful. What set these servants apart from the third servant was that they were faithful. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be faithful? I've given you an illustration of what it might look like for a geyser to be faithful, but what about us? The Greek word that Jesus uses here for faithful is pistos. 
And this word is inherently connected to the Greek noun for faith, which is pistis. And so to understand what faithful is, we first need to understand what faith is. We see this word faith, pistis, in passages like Ephesians 2.8, which is very famous, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is placing one's complete trust in another. To be saved by faith, therefore, is to trust completely in Jesus Christ for one's salvation. For by grace you have been saved through trusting Jesus Christ completely. Now, sometimes we like to think of faith as something that we do up here. It just belongs in the realm of our mind. But Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, called faith the trust of the heart. The trust of the heart. It is to place oneself completely in the care of another. Now, what it means to be faithful is to be worthy of that kind of trust. Faith is placing your complete trust in another. To be faithful is to be worthy of that kind of trust. Now, Scripture often talks about God as the one who is faithful. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.9, where Paul says, God is faithful, pistos, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, Without wavering, for God who promised is faithful. We place our faith in Jesus Christ because He is faithful. In other words, He's completely worthy of that trust. He is, in fact, the only one worthy of our trust. Now, to go back to this parable which Jesus tells, something interesting happens there, though. In the story, Jesus doesn't talk about God as the faithful one, the master as the faithful one. Rather, he talks about the servants as faithful ones. It is the master who calls the servants, the first two servants, faithful, which, as we've said, means worthy of trust. So these servants were worthy of the master's trust in them. How did they show themselves to be faithful? How did they earn that description? Well, it's actually quite simple. They did what the master told them to do. They did what the master told them to do. This is the essence of faithfulness. These servants who were entrusted with a certain number of resources in the master's absence, they knew that the master was going to return one day. They weren't fools. And so they did what he wanted them to do, so that when he came back, they would not be found lacking. This is faithfulness. And through this parable, it is faithfulness that Jesus is calling all of his disciples to. In fact, throughout the Old and New Testaments, God is always calling his people to this kind of faithfulness. He calls us to do what he tells us to do because we believe in his promises for the future. Now actually, here's something that's very critical for us to understand. Whenever Scripture calls us to put our faith in God, just faith, whenever it calls us to put our faith in God, to trust Him, it is always implicit and sometimes explicit 
that God is calling us to be faithful to him in the same motion. What I mean is this. Putting your faith in Christ is more than just some rational process where you believe a certain set of truths. Like Jesus died for your sins and rose again for your eternal life. That is true, and that matters. But faith is also to trust Jesus so completely based upon those things that you dedicate your life to him in order to do what he commands. Faith and faithfulness cannot be separated. If you're not faithful, how could you claim to have faith? So to return to this question, which I posed at the beginning of this sermon, how else are our present lives as Christians supposed to be different? How else are they supposed to be marked because of the hope we have in Christ's coming? I think that all of the lessons today, they speak to this characteristic, this characteristic of faithfulness. We are to be faithful based upon our hope. Now remember last week I said that in our core theology of the end that Christ's judgment, the judgment of the living and the dead, which we profess in the creed every week, that's going to cut two ways. For those who put their faith in Christ and are faithful to him, that's a day of hope. That is the day that we hope for. For those who are unfaithful to Christ, though, that's not a day to be hoped for. It's a day to be feared. And so where we'll go next is the Old Testament lesson from the prophet Zephaniah, who talks about the day of Christ's judgment. And I really only need to read one verse for us this morning for us to remember what that lesson was about. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Passages like these I don't often come across in the children's Bibles that I read to my kids. They aren't often the ones that we choose to memorize. We might like to not mention them on Sunday mornings as a result. We might like to pass over to pretend that they're not there. But if we did that, I, I, I want to say this, if we did that, we'd be missing something. We'd be missing something. And here's what we'd be missing. Every time God warns human beings against unfaithfulness. It is a mercy. It's a mercy. And here's why. The Bible is unequivocal that human sin and evil deserve punishment. It is that bad, whether we like to think of our own sin that way or not. Sin ruins what God made good and right and beautiful and therefore, human unfaithfulness in sin must have real and lasting consequences. Every time that God warns us against unfaithfulness, against our sin, it's actually an expression of his love for us. And here's why. If God did not give a damn about us, he would just damn us. Does that make sense? 
If God did not love and care for us, he would just do away with us. Forget the warnings. But God does warn us. He does warn us. And we need the warnings. And more than that, we need to heed the warnings. It's unfortunate that some Christians, and even some outside of the church, they like to pit the God of the Old Testament against Jesus. As if the old God were mean and angry, but the new God is loving and compassionate. Marcion is the name of one of the earliest heretics in the church, and he did this to the extent that he actually called the God of the Old Testament a different God and an evil God. And Christians should not read the Old Testament. In fact, there are only a few letters of the New Testament which Christians should read. The problem with this way of thinking is that it's rooted in the belief that God used to take unfaithfulness seriously, but now he doesn't anymore. Now he's all grace and mercy. Do whatever you like. God will accept you. It's no more true to say that Jesus in the New Testament doesn't take unfaithfulness seriously than it is to say that God in the Old Testament was not gracious and merciful. God has not changed. If we look closely at the scriptures, in the Old Testament, we see a God who painstakingly prepared the way for his Messiah, his own son, to save the world. And in the New Testament, we see God in Christ, who takes human unfaithfulness so seriously that he would die for it. He would die for it. And thus, when we look at the teachings of Jesus in their fullness, especially in passages like the parable of the talents, which we read today, but don't often get a lot of airtime in public square, we see both immeasurable grace and mercy, but also the unwavering and serious call to faithfulness. Don't kid yourselves. You cannot have faith without faithfulness. This leads me to the next lesson, our New Testament lesson from 1 Thessalonians 5. And I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about the call of faithfulness based upon the future, based upon the end. This is what he writes in, in verses 2 to 6. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, everything will be okay. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now in this passage, Paul reminds people about the judgment, the day when Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And he says that we do not know when that day will come. Because of that fact, because we do not know the day or the hour, we need to live differently. We need to live differently. If Christ's coming will be like a thief in the night, and I don't know if anybody has experienced what it's like to have someone break in in the middle of the night. I have not. But thieves do that because you're least 
expecting it then, right? You're most vulnerable when you're sleeping. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is coming after us to threaten us and he wants to take advantage of us because we're vulnerable. No, the point is Jesus is coming when we least expect it. If you knew that someone was going to break into your house in the evening, you wouldn't go to sleep. You do everything in your power to stay awake, drink some Red Bull or something. Stay up, stay guarded, and head him off when he gets there. Paul is saying, likewise, we need to stay awake. Stay awake. Stay sober. Now, Paul is not saying that we should all be devoted insomniacs. That's not the point, right? He's speaking figuratively, of course, and he's essentially saying this. Don't get complacent. Don't fall asleep at the wheel of your life. Don't get caught up in the intoxications of the world. Don't grow cold in your love and your fervor for Jesus. And don't be caught empty-handed when he comes. This is just another way for Paul, like Jesus, to encourage us to be faithful. That thing that we've been talking about today. Be faithful. Stay awake. Stay sober. Be faithful. Finally, let's take a look at the last lesson for today, Psalm 90. And we're going to just look at the last three verses of what we read today, verses 9 to 12. The psalmist writes, For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, God, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, if I didn't tell you where this passage came from, you might have guessed that it came from Ecclesiastes. It sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon. But these words are attributed to someone who came way before Solomon, Moses, Moses. What's the point of what Moses' words are saying here? Well, in verses 9 to 11, he basically says that our lives are short, they end quickly, and our sins, which deserve God's wrath, are many. Our lives are short, they end quickly, and our sins, which deserve God's wrath, are many. So based upon these things, the psalmist Moses says in verse 12, So God, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Make us to realize how short and fleeting our lives actually are, and therefore, how important it is for us to be faithful with them. In each of these appointed passages of Scripture for this morning, there is the firm expectation that the day of the Lord will come. All these passages are future-oriented. They're looking that direction. When Christ comes, when the day of the Lord comes, our lives on earth come to an end. There's something new. Now, it's not in spite of that, but actually because of that, that we have a deep and abiding hope as believers. 
Our expectation is that the best is yet to come. The best is not here. We don't live our best life now. That's hogwash. We live our best life then. We're faithful now. We're faithful now. Now, we have hope in the present. We have hope for the future because of Christ's coming. And that was the point of last week's sermon. The point of this week's sermon is this. Because we have hope in the future, we need faithfulness in the present. Because we have hope for the future, we need faithfulness in the present. If there's one passage of Scripture that I think binds these two things together, hope for the future and faithfulness in the present, into one concise statement, it's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And I want to read that briefly this morning. Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Hope for the future and faithfulness in the present. Paul tells us that as Christians, we are holding on in one hand to the hope of Jesus' coming, and in the other, we live out the faithfulness that he demands of such people. And it might surprise us. It might surprise us, but both of these things, hope for the future and faithfulness in the present, they are both rooted in God's grace. Meaning, it is only God's grace which makes them possible. We know that by grace through faith we have been saved. But do we realize that it is also by grace that we are faithful. It's only by grace that we're faithful. This idea that you're saved by faith, but then live out your life according to your human effort, that's heresy. It is God's grace which gives us faith and faithfulness. Listen again what Paul says in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. God's grace trains us to be faithful. Many times we just think of grace as that thing that makes up for our unfaithfulness. But it's not. The, the grace of God actually causes us to be faithful. Our faithful God takes faithfulness so seriously that he would supply us with the grace that we need in order to be faithful. Here's the thing. And I alluded to this earlier but I'll say it as clearly as I can because I believe it, and I believe that you need to believe it. If we are not living faithfully right now, if we're not seeking to be faithful, if we're not actively trying to follow Jesus with the lives that we have, it is due in large part to a lack of expectation about Christ's coming. Let me say that again. If we are not living faithfully now, it is due in large part to a lack of expectation about Christ's coming. 
To say that another way, it is due to a lack of faith. We cannot be faithful without faith. If we believe that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, to bring about the resurrection of the dead, and to inaugurate the life everlasting, then the hope that drives us towards that end helps us not to take God's grace in vain, but, other, but otherwise to be faithful to him above all else. In 1974, there was a U.S. senator named Mark Hatfield from the state of Oregon, and he had the opportunity to, to travel to India, to a city called Calcutta, in order to spend some time with a woman that you've probably heard of, Mother Teresa. And during his time with Mother Teresa, she gave him a tour of some of the things that were involved in her ministry. And she took him to a place called the House of the Dying. The House of the Dying, which was a place where sick children were cared for in their last days. She also took him to the dispensary, where poor people who didn't have access to health care would line up just to get medical attention so they didn't die. And when this senator saw Mother Teresa minister to these people, caring for those who had no one else to care for them, he was understandably overwhelmed by the need. He was overwhelmed by the magnitude of suffering that stared this woman and her fellow workers in the face. And so he asked her, how can you bear the load of this without being crushed by it? And this is what she said. My dear Senator, I am not called to be successful. I'm just called to be faithful. I'm just called to be faithful. I want to suggest that for the Christian, faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is a life well lived. Faithfulness ends in hope. So here's my prayer for us today. If you take nothing else away from the sermon, take away this prayer. God, we believe in the hope for the future. In all things, help us to be faithful in the present. God, we believe in the hope for the future. So in all things, help us to be faithful in the present. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. What you began in us, Lord, you must bring to completion. The faith that you planted in our hearts, you must cause to go into our wills and into our hands and feet that we actually live out your commands, that we live out a life imitating you. Lord, may that faith bear much fruit. Help your people. Help me to be faithful to the end. May we be passionate, Lord Jesus, about following you wherever you call us to go and doing the things that you call us to do, because, Lord, it is through that faithfulness that we indeed have great hope. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.